The motel is not what it used to be. Travel along highways of the United States and you see the glowing signs stretching from the exits next to gas stations and fast food joints begging you to pay them a visit while on a stop on the way to your next destination. The signs are so familiar now that they blend into the background, yellow and blue squares trembling in the night sky above the tree line that briefly part before the winding interstate carries you back into the woods. I've been driving I-75 in the Turnpike a lot this year, back and forth to Gainesville, and that stretch of road is peppered with these signs, the familiar and unfamiliar things that wait off the next exit. That's how I think of motels now, an easy place to sleep for travelers with a destination still too far away. But that's not how they used to be. No, many decades ago, in the early years of the 20th century, the motel was actually a bit of a destination, a place with far more to offer than just a bed for the night. Back in those days, they were called motor inns, motor hotels, motor palaces, denoting that they were, as they are still today, intended for long-distance travelers looking to get some shut-eye en route to their next destination, but they also offered so much more. As is pointed out in an article from the Smithsonian Magazine titled The Rise and Fall of the Great American Motel by one Andrew Wood, motels were not always the alternative for hotels. At a time, some homes or buildings just had rooms to rent for the night during travel season, sometimes called tourist homes. This evolved as business people saw an opportunity to make a few bucks from traveling Americans. There were glorified campsites called cabin camps, then those were elevated to cottage courts. They don't always need to be alliterative, but apparently they were at this time. According to the Smithsonian, these sorts of places were geared towards automobile travelers. The cottage courts, they had these little individual little buildings that you could rent for a night or two, and, and that's what separated them from hotels, according to the Smithsonian. They, they were sort of places that were geared towards automobile travelers. These places were sort of isolated rooms for rent, a cottage where you could just park right next to it, walk inside, hop in bed for the night, hop back in your car, get on your way. That easy. Other businesses would capitalize on the nearby travelers. Quote, along with filling stations, restaurants and cafes began to appear at these roadside havens, end quote. But after World War II, these little cottages and cabins needed to be more economical, especially when the highway system brought even more people along the roadways going from point A to point B. The business would need to evolve. Enter the motor court. Designed to be one building, one structure with many rooms, and to have a certain element of designed aesthetic to catch the attention of motorists passing by, motels became the newest form of motor traveler accommodations. Quote, they would soon be referred to as motels, a name coined by the owner of the Milestone Motel, an abbreviation of Motor Hotel, in San Luis Obispo in California. End quote. They were simple and accessible, easily designed, and meant to reflect where they were built. Drive anywhere along the coasts of Florida and you'll find plenty of these motels from the era still existing, the type that were built in those post-war years intending to offer the simple accommodations of a bed, a roof, and a shower. So many of them still exist in those beachfront towns, so many of them populated by tourists with sandy chairs and soaking wet towels drying on the railing outside. The beaches have allowed these motels to stay open. People will always be down for an easy beach trip and a stay in a beachside motel. Throughout the country, however, when motels popped up along highways in major cities, the motels would eventually struggle to keep afloat. Quote, limited access interstates built to bypass congested downtowns began to snake across the nation in the 1950s and 1960s, end quote. So people just weren't getting to the motels. There weren't many people just pulling off the road because a sign said vacancy. Add in that accessible travel hotels, the sort that I usually stay in while traveling for the show, like Holiday Inns or the like, began to take the business from motels. 
The motel faded as the main destination for traveling motorists exploring the United States. Despite what they had to offer, they just couldn't hack it. They fell away. One motel in Orlando, however, found a new way to survive when the motel craze died. In its earliest days, it was more than just a motel. It was a motel, a convention center, a restaurant, a bar, a pool, a golf course, right in the heart of urban Orlando. It was one of many in a chain of motels that dotted Florida and other parts of the southeastern United States, and they were part of a plan to expand for years to come. When bankruptcy struck the original owners of this motel chain, the others closed, but one remained. That last singular motel would redefine the character of the city beautiful, Orlando, to this very day. If you're a local, you know the name, and if you don't, you're about to. In Orlando, what started as a quote-unquote motor inn would soon become the launching pad for literally world-renowned artists to this very day. That motel was called the Parliament House. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the one and only Parliament House. How a motor inn became a theater, safe space, and a catalyst for art in Orlando for decades to follow. Parliament House began, as I've said, as a motel, convention center, a place for travelers in its earliest years, but over the ensuing decades, it became a safe space for the gay community here in Orlando, and a space for drag queens to put on shows that are still revered to this day. So many of the most famous drag queens that you've heard of got their start in Parliament House and still point to Parliament House as the launching point for their careers. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the Parliament House, the motel, the institution from beginning to end. This week, I'd like to introduce you to my guest of sorts. We talked for a long period of time, and you'll hear some clips from her throughout this episode, though she did tons of research that I'm going to be quoting throughout this episode. So I want to thank her. I want you to hear her voice. I want you to meet Rachel Williams. She is at the Orange County Regional History Center. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I visited the History Center many, many times in the last few years. I made a friend there, Melissa Procco, who you heard on this show a few times and received a dozen inquisitive emails from me over the years. Well, Melissa has moved on from the History Center, so she is spared from my constant questions and archival requests. In searching for research on this topic, the History Center got me in touch with Rachel Williams, who unfortunately is now carrying the burden of being the person who received my email saying hi me again can you look up some obscure name in your records please thank you so much we met on a wednesday morning before the museum opened and admittedly got a bit distracted talking about our mutual love of history and florida soon we got on track and began talking about parliament house again her research was essential in this episode so i'll be quoting it a lot but let's meet her because hopefully she'll be a recurring character on this show for years to come so let's meet our new friend rachel williams I'm Rachel Williams. I'm the historian. Um, I do kind of a lot of things. Um, lots of oral histories, research for oral histories, research for anyone that wants to pop in and needs information about something, all kinds of stuff. Do you mind if I ask, how did you get into, we've been talking for a while, yeah. <laughs> how did you get into history? How did it become something that became your, your focus? I spent my first year trying to be a radiologist to get into like radiology. Wow. Um, I'm bad at science. I'm so <laughs> bad at science. It does not make sense to me. Yeah. Um, and then I was undecided for a little bit still in college, decided I'll go into like dentistry because that's still kind of related. You still have to be good at science mm -hmm. to pass those prereqs. Mm -hmm. So biology. I, yep. Still didn't get, in, I didn't get into that program. Not surprised. But <laughs> in all of that, you have to take like history, like humanities prereqs. 
So I was like, I'm really good at humanities and history and I really enjoy it and it clicks in my brain. So how long have you been here? When did you start at the History Center? April 17th. Are you from Orlando? I'm from Ocala. Oh, okay. So if you ever need any, that's outside of the realm Mm -hmm. of, you know, the region of this museum, but like still. We chat about our mutual love of Orlando and Orlando history. And funny enough, we talk about one of my favorite spots in Orlando, Church Street. Just a few blocks from where we were chatting, Church Street is a place that is near and dear to anybody who has spent any time in downtown Orlando. The railroad runs right through Church Street, and a century or two ago, Church Street was the hub of commerce for rail travelers to Orlando. Bars and dance halls surrounded the railroads, and visitors would hop off the train and enjoy the amenities waiting for them here. You could find all sorts of, let's say, exciting things to do on Church Street, Look it up. It's It was quite a place. We'll talk about it sometime on this show. Church Street is uh, holds a very special place in my heart. But years have changed the city around Church Street. But oddly enough, many of the original structures of that old district still stand. The old depot has been a bar. It still stands next to the railroad. Some of the old hotels are two-story restaurants. And various sorts of bars have appeared along that stretch over the years. The train still rumbles by and folks still stop at Church Street on their way to somewhere else. I'll tell you though I won't get into the details, I used to give ghost tours that started on Church Street way before this show, a couple, about a year or so before this show started, I gave ghost tours in Orlando on Church Street, and some pretty spooky stuff (laughs) happened to me, but maybe that, maybe that's another, maybe, maybe that's a story for another day, but Church Street is a fascinating, wonderful, exciting place that that has a lot of great history. So Church Street is a bit of a hub for people who want to go and enjoy themselves downtown Orlando. Maybe they want to go to Amway for an Orlando Magic or Solar Bears game. Maybe they want to go into town for an improv show. Maybe they want to go on a ghost tour. Another one of the many entertaining businesses to pay a visit here on Church Street is called Hamburger Mary's. It is a delicious burger joint right near the train tracks. They have this great burger with mac and cheese on it that I've always loved. My God, it's so good. And it's right next to the train tracks, and it's known for great food, colorful atmosphere, and its iconic drag performances. Hamburger Mary's is mostly known for their drag brunches, where you can enjoy some breakfast food while a lineup of talented performers sing, dance, lip sync, and occasionally pick on you from the stage. Trust me, I have been a victim of their their well-meaning mockery, and it is extremely funny. <laughs> it's very, very good. But Hamburger Mary's is dealing with a crisis that many businesses around Florida are dealing with right now. The Florida government has passed legislation that has put the focus on drag performers and drag businesses like Hamburger Mary's, and Hamburger Mary's is actually doing something about it. As of the time of this episode being written and recorded, Hamburger Mary's is suing the state of Florida. The ramifications of that lawsuit will not only affect the city, the state, but the future of one of the most important artistic legacies in Orlando and Florida. Drag, in case you didn't know, is a huge part of Orlando's artistic landscape dating back many generations. Its origins are simple, but what started decades ago has turned into an international sensation. We're going to talk a little bit more about that lawsuit at the end of the episode, but what you need to know is this. Drag is a huge part of the art scene here in Orlando, and part of that tapestry is Parliament House. The beginnings were humble, a motel. It was called Parliament House. That that was what it was always called. Their tagline was a thing of genius. Due to its name, Parliament House, of course referring to the system of government in the United Kingdom, their tagline was, quote, built for the House of Lords, priced for the House of Commons, end quote. Genius. Very very clever marketing. Both the House of Lords and the House of Commons are part of Parliament, so it's just a good joke. I mean, it works. The owner, when the original building opened, was named Ned Eddy. He's from Missouri. Okay. Um, And 
wanted basically wanted to create like a chain of these motor ends. Yeah. Um, and the first one was the Orlando one, mm-hmm. and the he, his idea of it was he wanted this like English royalty theme. Mm. The Parliament House motels were a minor chain in the 60s, growing in the southeast with a few locations in Florida. There were eight motels total, and the plan was to have nine by 1965, but the one here in Orlando was the first when it opened on February 11th, 1962. I think I saw that the winner of Miss Universe from that year or the year before was at the opening, I think. And the Orlando branch easily was the jewel in the crown of the Parliament House franchise. Rachel points out that Orlando was booming at the time the motel opened, even nine years or so before Walt Disney World would open, changing the city forever. Downtown was growing. New businesses were opening throughout the city. The first shopping mall had just opened, and I-4 had just been completed, which was now a thoroughfare to bring travelers through the city beautiful in greater number. A motel like Parliament House would naturally find business, especially as it expanded its amenities. It was a 120-room motel, but it also had a restaurant called the Baron of Beef, which apparently was inspired by Ned Eddy's restaurant back in Kansas City. They would go on to add a few more interesting activities, a convention hall for one, as well as, quote, a swimming pool, a cabana club, putting greens, a lakefront beach, end quote, as well as a cocktail lounge. This place was a destination. Conventions would roll through, fashion shows would use the location, and even Cypress Gardens, the famous theme park here in town, brought its iconic water skiing shows to the lake nearby to be enjoyed by visitors of the motel. It was all happening for a few years, Parliament House, was the place to be. And it would be again, but things started to fall apart in the mid-60s. In 1965, the money ran out, and the original owner went bankrupt. The motel chain was taken over by another company, but the successful motel it had been for years was starting to falter. The motel, instead of being a destination for travelers from out of state, became just another motel in the city of Orlando, especially because Disney would soon arrive. When Disney came to town in 1971 with its own attractions and hotels, there was nothing really for Parliament House. It had no place in the city anymore. The market and the customers were moving on without them. The motel became a home to illegal activities, and the establishment itself had fallen to disrepair. Enter the saviors of Parliament House, Michael Hodge and William Miller, though seems like they were called Mike Hodge and Bill Miller, sometimes Hodge and Miller. We're going to talk about them a lot. They are very, very, very essential figures to Parliament House. But what I think is really interesting is is I've read a lot of articles from the 1970s about Parliament House, and I don't see Hodge and Miller's names a lot sort of cited in the articles. They were, as far as I can tell, this they seem to not want their names out in public as much. It seems like whenever there was a quote from one of them, the newspaper would often say one of the owners of Parliament House would say blah, blah, blah. So it seems like Hodge and Miller were public to the visitors of Parliament House. But when it came to the press, they try to keep a low profile, which you're going to learn a bit more about in this episode. They explain a little bit why they, they kind of kept their heads down for the most part in the press. They bought the property for 649000 bucks, a huge investment for them for the future. They were already business partners in town. They owned a bar called the Palace Club, which was a bottle club, meaning they didn't sell liquor on property. Patrons brought their own alcohol and drank it at the establishment. The Palace Club was a gay bar, and Hodge and Miller became entrepreneurs in creating establishments for the gay community in Orlando. An article from Timeline by writer Hava Guerreri. I believe that's how their name is pronounced. I hope I'm getting that correct. It's C-H-A-V-A, Hava Guerreri, G-O-U-R-A-R-I-E. But this article reads that Hodge and Miller were, quote, integral in bringing together a gay community in Central Florida, end quote. 
Before they bought Parliament House, they opened their second establishment, the Diamond Head, in 1972. The Diamond Head is actually considered the first quote-unquote real gay bar in Orlando because it actually sold liquor on property unlike the Palace Club. They opened another establishment, El Goya, which was a disco in Tampa in 1973. But the Parliament House was something else. It was something brand new for Hodge and Miller and for Orlando. It kind of kind of was beyond the expectations that they had set for themselves at the time. They had opened a bar, they'd opened a disco, but now they had a property that could be a bar, a disco, a motel, they, they, a theater. There were so many things that they could do with this property, and that was... <laughs> And in my opinion, it was apparent to them right off the jump because all of this happened pretty quickly. They quickly began referring to the hotel as a gay resort, a space for the gay community and for gay tourists to visit, stay, dance, enjoy themselves. A place that, that looked out for them, that was made for the gay community, both in town and for visitors from out of town. Disco specifically was a huge part of life at Parliament House. Disco as a genre actually was a huge thing for the gay community at bars in, at the time, back in the mid-20th century, because back in, in bars that were sort of considered quote-unquote straight bars, if you were, say, two men that were dancing with each other as partners, you could be kicked out. If you were dancing to a song where you wanted a partner, you know, dance close with someone that you were close with, your sweetheart or, or whoever you were with at the bar, if you were two people of the same gender, you could be kicked out of the bar because it, it just wasn't, that was the sort of thing that bars were very much against. But disco as a genre was sort of bolstered by the fact that you could kind of dance sort of by yourself, but you could dance near somebody that you wanted to dance with, and so disco became huge. I just watched this great documentary about Donna Summer that talks a lot about how Donna Summer's music, she was, you know, the queen of disco. Her music was extremely popular at gay bars and gay discos in the 70s because that music just allowed people to express themselves and they didn't have to fall into the restrictions of what could get them kicked out of bars at the time. So disco naturally became a huge part of Parliament House's draw it was it was one of the many things that brought people to parliament house in just a matter of two years the parliament house began seeing a thousand weekly visitors whether to stay in the rooms or to enjoy a trip to the bar or to go dancing or to see a show there were theme nights there were all sorts of events and people would literally travel from out of state to see what the parliament house had to offer one of the largest events at Parliament House, one that was part of its identity for its 40 plus years of existence was drag shows Drag as a performance style is hundreds of years old. The simple act of a man dressing in a wig and makeup has been a part of theater since its origins. Hell, really any gender dressing as another gender has been a staple of performance art. Shakespeare did it constantly, both in performance but also in scripts as well. Drag was a recurring bit in vaudeville performances for the late 1800s and early 1900s. Buster Keaton and Roscoe Arbuckle did drag in their short films in the early 20th century. Bugs Bunny wore drag. The Muppets wear drag. It's believed that drag in the gay community dates back to the 1860s in Harlem, New York. It's an incredible story that I'll link in the episode description so you can, can learn more about its originators. Historians believe that possibly the very first drag queen was named William Dorsey Swan. This is an extremely fascinating person. They were born under slavery at the time. They were born in 1860. I mean, I, I will include a link so you can read more about William Dorsey Swan, an extremely interesting person in American history. But the term itself, drag, doesn't have a clear origin. I've always heard that it's abbreviated, meaning dressed as a girl, and that it's sort of shortened into the word drag. Some say it's referring to the way that dresses would drag around on stage. There's a couple other different explanations, but the term itself 
it doesn't have a clear origin. It, it's, it's just the one that's stuck, <laughs> you know? Either way, drag as a comedic form, as a performance style, as a fashion, as a dancing style, all of them are extremely popular today as they have been for over a century, if not more. Drag has been an art form that people have used to express themselves for more time than we even have any ability to track. It's been a part of American history for certain for the last 160 years. It has certainly been prosecuted through the years. It, it always has been. It's been rejected by those who deem it inappropriate. So the language nowadays around drag is nothing new and drag has persisted through those assaults all the same. Now, however, they're facing legislative issues, which again, we will talk about more in a moment. But as I said, Parliament House was home to drag and one of the stars throughout the years was Miss P, performed by one Paul Wegman. Here actually is a clip of Miss P on a charity cruise from 1990. It's not at Parliament House, though I do believe that this is the same performer uh, portraying Miss P, Paul Wegman, as Miss P. Here, here she is. Are you having a gay time? Yeah. It warms the cuddles of my heart. Miss P is wearing a massive Bernadette Peters-esque curly orange wig with these jangly earrings the size of a compact from both ears. They're extremely shiny. It's quite a look. She's marching around a stage, lip-syncing, cracking-wise at the crowd. Apparently, Miss P ran the show at Parliament House for years. Miss P was, like, the MC, the main MC, yeah. up until she, uh, Paul retired Miss P in 2000. Yeah. Um, but Miss P was the, like main staple of Parliament House's drag shows. Okay. Like, I cannot imagine the stories because just from what I read, so Miss P and Paul, yeah. two separate sure. entities, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Performer, So if, if Paul was, like, out of drag yeah. and someone was like, hey, Miss P, Paul would be like, Miss P's not here. Paul was the artist and Miss P was the art, and apparently she ran the show for years. Drag was a huge part of Parliament House's live performance seat, including the Miss Florida Female Impersonator pageant, a classic format that brought lots of guests to the motel. And this wasn't just a 20th century thing. No, there are contestants who have reached international fame from RuPaul's Drag Race who got their starts at Parliament House and still perform regularly in Orlando. Seriously, look up how many contestants have come from Orlando. You'll be blown away. Parliament House has made stars and they have brought stars in. Quote, Eartha Kitt, Charo, Cindy Lauper, Lil' Kim, end quote, just to name a few of the many celebrity visitors who made their way to Parliament House, though I personally would give pretty much anything to see Eartha Kitt at Parliament House. Eartha Kitt is the best. I cannot imagine what her show was back in the day, but... It wasn't always easy, of course. It wasn't always just the fun and the and the shows. There were threats, of course, to what Parliament House was trying to build. The area around the motel wasn't always the safest, and crime would still occur in the area around downtown. And, of course, there was the threat of homophobic legislation that had started in Florida in 1977, specifically. Do you remember Anita Bryant? We have talked about her a few times on this show. I'll include a link so you can go back and listen to those episodes. But essentially, Anita Bryant led a protest against a Dade County ordinance that would ban discrimination against gay people. Her vitriolic language is similar to much of what we hear nowadays from bigoted language against the LGBTQ community. So Anita Bryant says a lot of things back in the 1970s that are being repeated in almost the exact same language by politicians and, and advocates today. 
And soon she made enemies with the gay community nationwide, including Harvey Milk, one of the most outspoken gay rights activists of the 20th century. In 1977, there was some discussion of Orange County passing a similar ordinance to protect against discrimination, but a quote from the time reads, I actually believe that this quote is from one of the owners of the Parliament House, though it's not clear who said it. The quote is, quote, I just don't think we need one. I haven't seen a lot of discrimination against gays here, end quote. That's either from Hodge or Miller, though it's unclear who said it. An article from June 7th, 1977 in the Orlando Sentinel, written by one Andrew Beerley, goes in depth on Parliament House at the time. Here's a quote regarding the police presence at Parliament House. Quote, One of the owners said relationships with police in Orlando and Orange County initially were shaky, but now both sides are cordial and cooperative. Orlando Police Chief James W. York said the police department patrols gay bars in the city, but no more or less than similar straight establishments. End quote. The Sentinel notes that the Parliament House did hire their own security guards to protect the area from any suspicious characters, perhaps anybody who was trying to cause the patrons harm. These next few sentences from the Orlando Sentinel from this same article are incredible. I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. This is a direct quote from the journalist who describes the sort of people you'd see at Parliament House. Quote, In the disco, there are, of course, all the pretty men, enough chiseled features to fill a museum, costumed in the icily chic styles of Pierre Cardin and Christian Dior. Incredible faces materialize, then drift away like balloons on clouds of blue smoke. End quote. Now that is good writing. <laughs> I love that. Incredible faces materialize. So dramatic, but it's, I mean, it's evocative. I can visualize that. I, I totally know what he's describing. Anyway, naturally, some people were going on dates to the Parliament House, some opting to spend a night with someone they met at the disco or, or at the bar, and some people were just there to dance, same as any disco or dance bar in the 1970s. The journalist spoke to those at the bar about what it meant to be visible and gay out in public in Orlando. Quote, those interviewed said they want to educate the straight community, to bring the homosexual viewpoint to light, and to destroy the myths that they are sinners, child molesters, or quote-unquote, sick people, end quote. But the journalist also notes that since the riot at Stonewall Bar in New York in 1969, which is widely considered the largest turning point in the gay rights movement of the 20th century, Florida still had a long way to go. There was still discrimination on a social basis, but also, quote, the Orange County School Board would not hire an openly gay teacher, end quote. The Parliament House was a part of the community and a big one, which was a tough balance. You know, they were trying to protect a community that really needed their support, but Bill Miller spoke about it a lot. He was constantly trying to maintain that equilibrium. Yes, they wanted to make money, and it could also allow them to expand their business and improve it, but if the public thought too much about Parliament, it could remind even those who despised them that the place existed at all. Keeping the patrons safe was their goal, and if too many people knew of Parliament House, the wrong crowd, they could threaten what they created. When Anita Bryant succeeded in repealing the discrimination ban, the Parliament House put up a sign under their main sign, it read, quote, we have only just begun, end quote. This is a separate article from Andrew Beerley just two days later in the Orlando Sentinel from June 9th, 1977. Quote, one of the owners of the Parliament House Motel and Bar said the defeat may unite gays in their fight for equality and offered free use of his bar for meetings if a local gay activist group forms, end quote. The Parliament House was more than a getaway, a vacation, a destination. It was a rallying cry for equality and progress. When the 80s came to Parliament House, the attendance continued to rise. Quote, by 1983, between 5,000 and 7,000 people visited the resort club per week. End quote. 
that's a significant increase from 1,000 to at least 5,000 per week. It's an impressive growth, no doubt, and the reputation grew with the customers. It was becoming known worldwide as a destination, but it also became an actual place where people lived. The motel rooms weren't just rentable for short periods. Some people found security in the walls of Parliament House for a long time, lived there long term. But things were on the verge of change. That is because in 1981, the first diagnosis of HIV came about and the AIDS epidemic would change America and its gay community forever. I strongly encourage you to read up on the AIDS crisis and the AIDS epidemic, its causes, its responses, its lack of responses, and the impact that it had on America. I promise you that I will discuss it more on this show. It is a tragedy and an injustice that I frankly think everybody should be talking about more, and uh, I want to do more of my part on that topic. So this is sort of the first time we're going to talk about it on this show, and it affected everywhere, and it affected Florida just the same. It It affected Parliament House. When AIDS became a prominent issue worldwide, and it affected the gay community in a very sharp degree, Parliament House opened space for AIDS support groups, helped pay for rent or medical bills for community members who lived nearby, on property or nearby, and they did anything they could to support the community in Orlando as AIDS began to make a terrible mark. It was personal for Parliament House. A staggering article from 1987 published in the Orlando Sentinel is headlined, quote, AIDS kills co-owner of homosexual club, end quote. Bill Miller died of AIDS at the age of 53 that year, 1987. Here is a quote from his business partner, Mike Hodge, that is in the Orlando Sentinel's piece on Miller's death. Hodge says the following, quote, I would hope this would help other gays. There needs to be more education. Gays, as well as straights, have to be more careful. We've always tried to stay out of the paper. Publicity about gays always turns out bad, but I felt this had to be told, end quote. They had strayed away from the public spotlight for years, but when Miller died, Hodge went public and wide to support his people and honor Miller. Hodge says that Miller didn't have multiple partners. He had just one for several months. Quote, if this could happen to Bill, it could happen to anyone. End quote. The article goes on to say, quote, after Miller became ill, he and Hodge discussed selling the Parliament House and the roughly 12 acres of land that surround it. They entered into several rounds of negotiations, but potential buyers would not meet the asking price, which Hodge would not disclose. End quote. For years after, Hodge donated to any charity he could to help the fight against AIDS. He himself was HIV positive and would pass away from liver failure in 1992, just five years after Miller died in 1987. After that, the Parliament House fell back into disrepair and remained that way for much of the 90s. AIDS took its toll on the gay community nationwide, including here in Orlando. In 1999, the Parliament House found new life when a couple, Don Granitstein and Susan Unger, bought it. They were in the timeshare business and thought about franchising Parliament House as a chain of gay resorts, like the original motel chain back in the day, but specifically for gay customers. Money would continue to be a problem for the ensuing decades, but the art continued to come out of the drag clubs at Parliament House. It, it was able to stay alive into the 21st century because this couple bought it. Many of the drag queens who I mentioned made it onto drag competition shows like RuPaul's Drag Race got their start during this era, during these early years of the 21st century under this couple's ownership. But the good times were not to last. Right before the COVID-19 lockdowns of 2020, Parliament House announced that the debt was too much, and it was sold yet again. The new owners announced that the Parliament House was closing for good, and it did so on November 2nd, 2020. It was demolished that month. An icon. Gone. 
the sign, which I have not mentioned much, is, is pretty iconic. If you've lived in Orlando, you know exactly what it looks like. It looks like a diamond, sort of horizontal, orangish red with this beautiful white lettering, and it says Parliament House. When the 2004 hurricanes hit here in Orlando, there's these sort of 60s style squares that were around Parliament House, and when the hurricanes hit in 2004, they knocked those squares away, and so when they rebuilt them, they made them in the colors of the pride flag. Now the sign is at the History Center. It's been saved. It's the only part of the original establishment that still exists. The whole thing is gone. There is talk of reopening the brand in a new location, but as of this recording, I have no update. Parliament House, for now, is gone. But Parliament House's legacy is deeply felt. Drag is still a huge part of the art and club scene here in Orlando. Southern Nights is a massive venue for drag in the city, and Orlando Fringe is a yearly theater event that has many, many drag shows in town. That's just to name a few. Drag has been a part of the city's culture for 50 years, and it's not going away. Parliament House brought about many other businesses like it, including Pulse, which was once a thriving gay bar with drag performances until June 12, 2016, when a gunman killed 49 individuals on a Saturday night. That horrific tragedy has left a permanent mark on this city, and the names of those who were lost are discussed and honored every year on the anniversary. Their loss is profound, and the city mourns the loss of a safe space like Pulse every single year. The whole city mourns. Parliament House was run as a safe space, and those safe spaces are proving more and more vital in a state where the local government is placing restrictions on businesses that survive on their drag shows. Let's talk about it. Senate Bill Number 1438. I'll include a link in the description so you can read the bill itself. It was signed on May 17th of this year, 2023, by Governor Ron DeSantis. It essentially considers drag shows to be quote-unquote adult live performances and would fine an establishment if they were to allow a minor, a child, in the building if a quote-unquote adult live performance were to take place. Now, the conversation, I want to make it clear up front, the conversation, the language in this bill does not explicitly say drag bans. That, that's not what it says. But it is in the arguments about the legislation that were happening in the state legislature as this bill was going through the, the chambers to be passed into law, there was legitimate conversation about how drag met the definition of an adult live performance. So an adult live performance could mean many different types of things, but in the legislation, they were specifically including drag under that umbrella, which means that a minor could not see a drag show because it is considered to be by this legislation sexually explicit it, it, the implication is that every drag show fits under that definition of an adult performance a sexually explicit adult performance and that's just not the case that that's just not the case at all so Hamburger Mary's, which we talked about at the beginning of the show, this is the establishment that is suing the state of Florida over this bill. It's a burger joint with these drag performances that's part of their identity as a restaurant. The debate is about drag itself, whether or not it fits into the lewd classifications that this bill is attempting to restrict. The lawsuit says that the drag shows at Hamburger Mary's include, quote, no lewd activity, sexually explicit shows, disorderly conduct, public exposure, obscene exhibition, or anything inappropriate for a child to see, end quote. A statement from Hamburger Mary's says, quote, this bill has nothing to do with children and everything to do with the continued oppression of the LGBTQ plus community, end quote. 
They say that, quote, bookings fell 20% after the restaurant, out of caution, told customers this month that they could no longer bring children to drag shows, end quote. This month that they're referring to is May, which is when the article from NPR that I'm quoting here was written. This bill uh, concerning these adult live performances is all after the state government has passed more controversial bills, including the Don't Say Gay bill, which we discussed last year, passed bans on gender-affirming care for trans minors, and, quote, restrictions on using bathrooms bathrooms that don't match one's assigned sex at birth, end quote. All the laws discussed are considered too vague from a legal standpoint and outwardly anti-gay and anti-trans in execution. Gay rights advocates nationwide have been extremely vocal about these laws, calling them bigoted, hateful, and dangerous. Governor Ron DeSantis' press secretary, Brian Griffin, sent a statement to Business Insider for their article about the anti-gay and anti-drag laws the state is passing. This is a quote specifically about the anti-drag law, rather the, the anti-adult live entertainment law. Here is the statement. It's, it's brief. Quote, Sexually explicit content is not appropriate to display to children, and doing so violates Florida law. Governor DeSantis stands up for the innocence of children in the classroom and throughout Florida. End quote. As is said in the statement from Hamburger Mary's, nothing in their shows remotely meet the definition of the term sexually explicit content. The crux of this debate is clear. Drag shows are not inherently sexually explicit, and the governor's office implying that they are is part of a homophobic movement that is sweeping state governments across this country, especially here in the state of Florida. Florida has become a part of a movement of anti-gay legislation that has made gay Floridians more and more concerned with remaining in the state. Articles from across Florida share stories of gay Floridians feeling unsafe in this state and choosing to move elsewhere in order to flee these bigoted laws. Orlando is facing a question about their very soul. Drag has been a part of the city's culture at large for nearly 50 years. How does the city maintain its culture and protect its community when the state is approving these complex, vague, and dangerous laws? The Hamburger Mary's lawsuit, which is still developing at the time of this episode, could be a huge part of what comes next. If they succeed, or if they make their point and more lawsuits come, this culture war could come raging back. And those who support the drag community here in Orlando, in Florida, or in this country will certainly make their voices heard. Okay, I never get to do this. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm jumping into the middle of this episode. So the, the episode that you've been listening up to this point was recorded about a week ago uh, with a script that I had been writing for a little while with a research, obviously, about this topic. And as I'm talking about the current event of the lawsuit with Hamburger Mary's against the state of Florida, I, I had recorded me saying as of the time of this episode being written and recorded, there's no update on the state of that case, but I am... <laughs> I'm recording this late Friday night because like the Friday before this episode's coming out because there's a news update as of today. I mean, on Friday, June 23rd at 4.05 p.m., this is an article from Politico written by David Kahara, and it is an update about this exact case. So I wanted to give you the most recent update on this story as I possibly can. The headline is, quote, Federal judge blocks Florida from enforcing ban on minors attending drag shows, end quote. 
The article goes on to say, quote, The judge, Gregory Prinell, was acting on a request by the restaurant chain Hamburger Mary's, which sued Florida last month, claiming that the law was overly broad and put a chilling effect on the right to free speech under the First Amendment. Prinell, an appointee of former President Bill Clinton, determined that while some people may find a drag performer reading a children's book to a minor during a performance to be inappropriate, it doesn't necessarily constitute an obscene performance. He also stated that current obscenity laws already, quote, provide defendant with the necessary authority to protect children from any constitutionally unprotected obscene exhibitions or shows, end quote. And then another end quote, because that was a quote inside of a quote. But this is a, a very, very huge development in the story. Now, there is going to be appeal on this case by the state of Florida, which means that the trial is not necessarily over. It just means that there is a temporary block, as is stated in the headline. But this is a story that's, that's going to develop. But this is a very, very huge development. So they're obviously going to be contesting this. It's going to go back to court. But for now, there is a block on this bill. But it's, it's a thing that's going to be developing. And uh, it's extremely interesting that this happened about a month after it was originally filed. The bill was signed May 17th, as I said. And now it's June 23rd. And it's been blocked by a federal judge. This is, the, this is another in several of these anti-gay and anti-trans legislation that has been passed by the Florida state government that has been blocked by a federal judge. Now, a lot of these are still going through the, the appeal system. The state of Florida is going to be attempting to appeal the cases, which means that they're going to you know, go through more of the legal rigmarole. I'm not a lawyer, in case you didn't know. So I can't explain right now the sort of eccentricities of this law, but I promise you I will be doing more research on what this process looks like, what this appeal looks like, something like that. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode and sort of break down what that looks like when a law is blocked and then that block is appealed because it's very interesting. It's the sort of thing that we're going to be talking about a lot with these various laws, something we're even going to be talking about next week on the show. But I wanted to give you the most up-to-date version of this event as I possibly can. I'll include a link to this Politico article so that you can read it in full. This is a huge development in this story, a story that, that will have lots of developments over the next couple of weeks or months. So keep an eye on it. I'll be sure to update you as best as I can. But all right, I'm sending it back to previous Nick, the original audio Nick. <laughs> Pardon the interruption, but I needed to share that with you guys. I'm reminded, of course, of that sign that was put up at Parliament House when Anita Bryant got the discrimination bill overturned back in the day, a victory for anti-gay legislation in the 1970s, when her bigoted perspective won out. Parliament House changed their sign. It's a simple sentiment, I think. A rallying cry and a warning. It read, We have only just begun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. I've been wanting to do this episode, talk about Parliament House and Orlando's history for a long time, and it felt now was an appropriate time. So thank you for listening, and I hope that you share it with uh, someone who wants to hear it, someone who needs to hear it, someone uh, who you think might uh, need to have their perspective rattled a little bit <laughs> to, to remind them of the history and how relevant it is to this day. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. If you want to find the show and more pictures about Parliament House, you can do so at WFMPod on Instagram or Facebook. You could send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com. I, I genuinely look forward to hearing from you. If you have any good stories about Parliament House that you want to hear uh, shared on the show, send me an email. I, I would love to share some of those sentiments on the show. So I look forward to hearing from you. 
Thank you to Rachel Williams for all of her research. She's quoted repeatedly throughout the episode. The History Center is a great resource and a great visit. They've got an awesome exhibit going on right now about punk in Orlando. It's very cool. So go check that out and uh, go pay the History Center a visit. And thank you, Rachel, for your time. I, I hope to have her on the show again soon, maybe for that holiday episode. Maybe some, I've got a couple Orlando ideas. I might be bugging Rachel more often than you think. <laughs> I also included a link from Miss P. Paul Wegman in the episode. Uh, I've included a link to that YouTube so you can go look at the clip. I don't own the rights to that video, but I wanted you to hear Paul Wegman, you know, performing as Miss P so that you can understand the, the sort of character that Miss P was. So so thank you to whoever shared that incredible video. It was uh, very enlightening and, and, and quite an entertaining watch. Other than any music in that clip, all of the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, that is it for me this week. It has been, uh, I'm really grateful to be back to Mondays. It was important to do those Tuesday episode releases, but it's going to be Mondays throughout the summer. We're going to take a break in the middle of July, but you'll hear about that when we get to it. But it's Mondays all the way down, and next week, it is the 3rd of July. We're going to be celebrating Independence Day week, the 4th of July week, by talking to a politician. Representative Anna V. Escamani, who I had on the show many years ago, 2019 now, and uh, we finally got to catch up, and we talked a lot about one of my favorite topics in Florida, which is how a bill becomes a law. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing that episode. It was such a great chat, and uh, I just can't wait for you to hear it. It was such an awesome conversation, and I learned a lot, which I think always makes for a good episode. So I will see you next Monday for that chat. Happy Pride. Have a very wonderful week ahead of you. And until I see you next Monday, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go gator and muddy the water. Have a great week. See you later, alligator. <laughs>